Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As we head into the dog days of summer, we thought we would replay a couple of our favorite episodes. We'll return with new episodes immediately after Labor Day. Now, you may not know that August is National Civility Month. Given that, it seemed appropriate to replay our episode with Jane Reardon, former executive director of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. Jane has since retired from this role, but she continues to speak on professionalism topics such as civility, diversity, and leadership. We hope you enjoy listening to the conversation again. Thank you. Today's guest is Jane Reardon, the Executive Director of the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism. The commission promotes a more civil, professional, and inclusive legal culture in the state. In her nearly 16 years at the commission, Jane has overseen a growing roster of initiatives rooted in civility, including programs on ethics, diversity, well-being, and the future of law. These programs are united by her belief that the legal profession can and should be better in meeting the unmet legal needs of consumers by unlocking the underutilized potential of attorneys. In today's conversation, we learn how Jane's approach to the issues facing the profession are shaped by her prior experience as a successful trial lawyer, which she sees as the barriers to civility in the profession, and how a focus on civility can increase access to justice. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Jane. How are you? I'm well, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining. Thank you for making the time. It's great to have you and talk about professionalism and civility and your work with the Commission on Professionalism here in Illinois. So thank you for sharing your thoughts in advance. I'm pleased to do so. Let's start by talking a little bit about your background. You started with sort of a traditional lawyer background. You went to University of Michigan Law School, a great law school. And then you came out and became a litigator. What sort of drove you into litigation? What was that draw? So I was drawn to the law from a very young age. I think the idea I remember in high school of the mailbox rule, I thought, wow, this is an awesome way our society is ordered. And I came from not a very ordered family life. So the idea of being part of giving voice to the voiceless and all of the aspirational aspects of the rule of law really attracted me. I also was a little bit of a theater buff. So the idea of courtroom drama and the gamesmanship and the drama of trials was attractive. And I also did not want to get into criminal. So it kind of by very natural evolution came about that I went to a firm that was fairly highly steeped in civil litigation. And I enjoyed that. I got a lot of cases and a lot of trials at a very young time in my career. So it was very satisfying for a time. We're going to talk a little bit more about the work the commission is doing for civility and for behavior of lawyers. But what experiences did you have as a trial lawyer in your early years that sort of have stuck with you as you've moved into enhancing professionalism, enhancing civility in the profession? So one very early lesson, and I try to tell the people I mentor is what goes around comes around. The legal community is very small, really. And uh, how you act and how you treat 
other lawyers and other people in the legal system really has a bearing on your effectiveness. And the other thing that is, I think, very great training as a litigator is to prepare and look at problems from all angles. And that really stands you in good stead in so many ways that your career can go. But particularly, I remember as a litigator learning really how to anticipate study, consider things from different angles. It's been useful all the way up through till today. I also grew up as a litigator. So what you're talking about resonates with me in particular. But I assume you had the experience most of us in litigation have with difficult lawyers on the other side. Is that part of what sort of the goes around, comes around thought you have that experience? Absolutely. And in fact, dealing with very difficult and uncivil lawyers was part of the impetus for me leaving litigation. I could, you know, gird my loins for battle with the best of them, but it took a lot of effort and I didn't feel very good about myself at the end of the day. I remember very distinctly uh, losing my temper, getting into a shouting match with opposing counsel, slamming down the receiver of the phone and just feeling, wow, this is not good. This is not the way I want to live my life. And I looked up and in my doorway was the partner who was a few offices down. He knocked on my door jam and gave me the thumbs up sign. So the incentives were, this is good. This is the way you should be. But meanwhile, what my gut was telling me is this is not the way I want to live my life. And that kind of started me down the path to really question a lot of how I spend my professional life in litigation. It's interesting. I think a lot of us have had similar reactions who've litigated and some stick with it and some of us choose a different path. It's So it's interesting you talk about it that way. And, and you said this is what led you to the commission where you've been for a long time. You started as disciplinary counsel, if I've got that right. Yes, you do. Uh, what happened is I started working for the ARDC, our Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission, while I was raising four young children, which is another aspect that's not really conducive to, at least back in the day, women trial lawyers having small children. Another thing I distinctly remember is working on motions in limine at 11 p.m., not having seen my toddler and infant child in two days, thinking, these motions in limine really don't need this much attention at 11 p.m. And so the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission was a good choice because the hours were regular. I learned an awful lot about the way we regulate lawyers. And I stayed there over a decade, Steve. And then when the court opened the Commission on Professionalism, I came over at the beginning as deputy director. That was in 2006. What was the impetus to create the commission? What was the court trying to accomplish? So the court was trying to address the tendency of lawyers, primarily litigators, but lawyers of all stripes, to equate aggressiveness with advocacy. We in the legal profession were getting um, a lot of bad rap, and unfortunately, I don't think it's gone away, for being dog-eat-dog, aggressive at all costs perhaps not serving our clients well. So in the early 2000s, the court established a committee on civility, 
that went around the state of Illinois talking to stakeholders about what the practice was like and problems and challenges. And as a result of those many years of study, out came a recommendation for an MCLE board and the first time CLE was mandated in our state for continuing legal education and the creation of the Commission on Professionalism to address issues such as civility, diversity, and trying to make our legal system more equitable and efficient. And it's been really very exciting to work proactively on behalf of the profession and those ideals that we all you know, strive for. Whereas in discipline, I felt like it was a bit of a whack-a-mole situation. Lawyers <laughs> get in trouble, they get disciplined. Whereas this commission has offered an opportunity to say, how can we do this better? We're a profession devoted to service. And um, so it's allowed for an incredible amount of creativity, and uh, that's been really a, a fantastic ride. That's fabulous. I want to spend some more time talking about the commission, but let's broaden the lens a little bit because you talk about creativity and you talk about trying to change things. You've written and talked about the role of innovation and technology and the change on the profession and the regulation aspects of that and how it impacts innovation. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on some of the efforts in Illinois, Utah, Arizona, California to experiment with the regulation, particularly as it relates to technology and allied professionals in the business. Where do you see us, the current state and where do you see it going? So I think this is a really exciting development that's starting to percolate up in various states. Utah and Arizona are out in front, of course, and they have changed some of the rules of professional conduct that address how lawyers can structure their businesses. And it allows for, in both states, a licensure of a paraprofessional that's not necessarily a full JD, hasn't gone to three years of law school, but can deliver some of the legal services that right now are not being met. Across the country, across the world, frankly, we have a really severe access to legal services problem. And some surveys say up to 80% of the civil legal needs of those in America are not being met. Sometimes people don't even know that they have a problem with a legal solution. In my opinion, that's a professionalism issue. And it's a failure, frankly, of our profession to do what it was set up to do, which is to use the law to provide services to those who need it to, you know, again, not to be trite, but give voice to the voiceless. Let people know what their rights are and empower them to live out their rights. In my opinion, some of the regulations in the rules of professional conduct have little, if anything, to do with the ethics of lawyering, and it has a lot to do with the business of lawyering that is being stifled by the regulations, and it's negatively impacting lawyers' ability to access technology and to serve clients' across large swaths of counties that may not be able to physically meet with lawyers. 
It's discouraging lawyers from innovating. So I think the regulations are standing in the way of lawyers being able to develop a thriving practice and more importantly, better serve the people who need services. There will always be services for those who can pay top dollar. That's not what we're talking about. But the vast majority of middle income and low income people don't have access to legal services. And I think re-regulating is part of the answer to that problem. And how would you re-regulate? I share your view that these are barriers to innovation and service. And we've got to think differently, particularly about the services to individuals and small businesses, et cetera. If you had a magic wand, how would you re-regulate? Well, I think that more paraprofessionals need to enter this space, similar to the medical profession. An MD doesn't necessarily have to draw blood or change a bandage. We have some lower level services that are very repetitive that can be delivered by individuals with perhaps more specialized training and a limited license, some continuing educational requirements to provide those services. So the paraprofessional route, I think, is extremely important. I also think the rule that's in our model rules of professional conduct, which is 5.4, which says lawyers may not share legal fees with non-lawyers, really needs to be adjusted. That is a situation where lawyers are not incentivized to take advantage of and go into business and perhaps share profits with technologists or others who could complement the services, make it more efficient. And if you view this, Steve, from the eye of the consumer, why do I want to go to my lawyer and then take whatever my lawyer says to my tax accountant, to my financial planner, all independent? Wouldn't it be a lot more efficient if we had one-stop shopping with allied professionals working together in service to all of a client's needs? So I think Rule 5.4 is in almost every jurisdiction, except now Arizona, of course, has been a huge barrier in services to clients and in innovation. So I think that really needs to be adjusted. And it looks like it's under consideration in a number of jurisdictions. Yeah, it's a complicated regulatory framework, isn't it? Yeah. With 50 states, each regulating lawyers on their own. It's not as simple as the UK, for example, in their uh, their Services Act. But do you see progress being made? I do. And I see an analogy with the uniform bar exam, right? We used to have 54 different bar exams, but now most jurisdictions sign on to a uniform exam. As the world has flattened, the regulation of what competencies lawyers need to have in order to be licensed seems to be pretty similar state to state to state. And if that's the case, you got to wonder, well, why aren't the regulations similar state to state to state? Because it is not the situation where the law of Arkansas isn't readily available to someone in another state. They can just look it up. When these rules were enacted a 100 years ago, you know, you didn't have access to another state's laws. You know, you had to physically go there by horseback. That's not the world we're living in right now. And the rules really need to reflect the reality of today. Agreed 100 percent. 
Let's move back to the commission and its its work because you focus on a number of aspects. Your website is two civility, the number two civility. As I said, you have a number of cornerstones to what the commission does, but you highlight civility. Why? Civility was the principle that animated the creation of the Commission on Professionalism. And I did a lot of studying about what do we mean by the word civility? A lot of people equate civility with being nice, having good manners, and or being overly accommodating, right? So you can't be a good, aggressive lawyer and be civil. The reality is the idea behind civility comes from the Latin and French origins of the word. And it talks about being a good citizen. Back in the Greek city-states, there were certain rules about how do we live in community with one another. When we view civility in that context, it really transcends a lot of our relationships, And I think that civility is so important in our society right now and so lacking, and it is a challenge. But I think if lawyers reconnect with the idea that they are the keepers of the rule of law and the idea of having disagreements and dialogues about those disagreements is really the cornerstone and foundation of our country, right? That's what democracy is built around, is is discussing disagreements and coming to what can be a consensus and moving forward. We seem to have lost that both in the political sphere and in the legal sphere. And I do think there's some bright lights on the uh, horizon there that we might be turning some corners there. But we were set back quite a bit in society. And though, Steve, bright light I want to point out is through our nation's history, whenever there's political upheaval, there's a lot of crying out about incivility. You might know if you're a student of history back in the 1800s when the pro-slavery and abolitionists got into a fight and one of the senators beat the other one near death with a cane on the floor of the Senate. When emotions rise high and people care about change, the civility or lack of civility becomes kind of front and center. But I'm hopeful that lawyers recognize that we need to be problem solvers. This kind of tied up with the re-regulation, right? Clients don't want to pay lawyers to beat the other side with the cane till near death because it costs too much money to them. They want problem solvers. And I think lawyers do have the skills and can move us forward together as a nation. So the political and the legal and the re-regulation is kind of all bound up in this really transformative moment I think we're living in right now. Let's hope we come out the other side consistent with your vision. But let me move back just a little bit. So you, you told this story about getting into an argument with opposing counsel. And the partner coming across and giving you a thumbs up. That behavior that that's emblematic of occurs, I suspect, all the time in law firms and in law practices, big, little and small. How do you go about changing that behavior? How do you go about getting people to understand the concepts you're talking about and actually do it differently? So we have at the Commission on Professionalism been educating lawyers through CLE programs for a number of years on these topics, how to have difficult conversations, 
how to focus on the issues and not the people, techniques of reframing. Interestingly enough, our programs are more successful if we frame it up as how to diffuse incivility in the opposing council, because nobody wants to admit they themselves might have been uncivil, right? (laughs) So uh, the education piece, and I'm really happy to say one other thing about the scope of the Commission on Professionalism. You do point out it's very broad compared to other commissions across the country. We were the 14th state to establish a commission on professionalism, and we have surpassed all other states in terms of influence and activities. But in the terms of education, the professional responsibility requirement for CLE includes not only ethics and professionalism, but it also specifically calls out civility substance abuse and mental health, which is an issue of professionalism in our profession, and diversity and inclusion. So we, every seven years, as it's turned out, have done a statewide survey on professionalism. I think you're aware of that. We just finished one in 2021. It was just published just the other day, right? Right. We just released it the other day. A couple of positive things that came out of that survey, and it was promulgated by an independent organization out of the University of Illinois. But a question was, how do you respond to uncivil or unprofessional behavior? And there was a marked increase in 2021 over 2014 that respondents are choosing civil ways to address the behavior such as reframing, providing constructive feedback. We tried to give lawyers tools that really they don't get, which is reframing conversations to be constructive. So that's a bright spot. And the other thing that came out of this survey is that compared to 2014, there was a drop of 31% of attorneys across our state who had an incident of incivility in the prior six months. So I thought that was a positive. I want to come back to the survey in a minute because there's also some not so good news in the survey dealing with diversity and sex. But how do you assess the impact of the pandemic? on survey because your survey, I assume it was done sometime during 2021. So in the height of the pandemic. It was, Steve. And this is a question mark for all of us, right? Our professional lives have been so markedly changed by the pandemic. So it's difficult to say. People aren't bumping into each other in court. Trials were paused for many, many months. And so in personal interactions were probably down during the time of the survey. But we, we don't know how to categorize that either. I think the pandemic is part of what is making this such a trigger point for change in our profession, too, though. And I do want to address the diversity and inclusion stats of that survey because people are interacting on Zoom. And in that regard, everybody gets the same size square, whether the senior partner or the paralegal. And so some reports say that women and minorities and younger lawyers are actually making headway at a faster pace because of the pandemic. In addition, I've read some reports that younger lawyers are getting access to clients 
more quickly in their careers because it doesn't cost as much. You know, the senior partner can take them along via Zoom without paying for hotels and planes and everything else. So there's some positive things about that. And of course, there's some negative things, right? There's a lot of professionalism issues of a negative sort that have come about and are showing up in reports isolation. Women are reportedly leaving the force. They're feeling very overwhelmed compared to their male counterparts because of the pandemic and having to care for children and elders, etc. So the pandemic throws it all up in the air. And so I don't know whether we can say that the incidence of incivility would have been the same had we been in court and in person during 2021. Unknown. As a commission, how do you react to a survey like this? How do you take the information and what do you do with the information? So as you know, we just released the survey and it will be provided in articles and in our CLEs. We have, as I mentioned before, I think a lot of how to have a civil conversation, collaborative conversations, civility focused CLEs. And so these results will be shared with people in that regard It will be the cornerstone of our programming is the short answer to that. And I do want to address you intimated that there's some not as positive results around incivility focused on race, sex and age in this survey. And that's actually similar with a lot of other surveys, including the International Bar Association did a really far reaching survey in 2019, as you're probably aware. So incidents, respondents reported more incidents of incivility, conduct and comments on age, sex and race 2021 over 2014. My sense is there is a heightened awareness, particularly around the issues of sex and race in our legal community and in our society generally. And so what we have found when we do training, we, for example, we have done many courthouse professionalism trainings where we do a survey pre-training and one three months post-training. And pretty much across the board, post-training, the awareness of incivility goes up because I think people, until they're aware, yeah, you know, that probably wasn't just a joke. That might have been a completely inappropriate comment. So it's hard to know. Are the incidents increasing or are the awareness of the respondents increasing? And that's something that we'll need to kind of tease out over time. What are the goals and objectives for the commission going forward? I mean, more of the same, I presume, but you're in a changing landscape between pandemic and the changes in the profession and the possibility of re-regulation. So put it all in a hopper for us and tell us about what's next for the commission. So the possibility of re-regulation is up to the Illinois Supreme Court. As you may know, the Chicago Bar Association, Chicago Bar Foundation has made some recommendations there. So the Professionalism Commission is waiting word from the court about that. We have done a three-year strategic plan every three years since I became executive director, and we just completed our 2022 to 2024 strategic plan. So I'm happy about that. 
we will continue the programming that has been so successful around education, around mentoring, which is a big push for us. And in addition, I'm kind of transitioning out. I'm going to be retiring from the commission next spring, probably in April. So I'm going to stay around and see and pass the torch to another executive director to continue on the work. I don't expect a major change, given the fact that we just did a strategic plan and our budget, our staff is pretty static. But one thing that we are looking at that I think is quite interesting, and you had mentioned England and Wales, that is looking at professional responsibility, CLE, from a competency point of view. Instead of having, oh, the CLE reporting period is over, what can I just take to check the boxes? In the area of professional responsibility, CLE, Oh, Jane, nobody does that. (laughs) (laughs) I heard through the grapevine one or two people do that. Uh, I don't don't know. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) But wouldn't it be great if there were actually a plan for, you know, how can this education really help me in my professional development? And how can I progress beyond basic levels to more intermediate, more advanced And I think that is someplace the commission is at least going to investigate going. And I think it would be a real big plus for our profession. I think that's a great concept. I think that's that's a fabulous idea. And I hope you'll have some technological competency components based in there as well, because I think the more lawyers understand, I don't think they need to know how to code, but they need to understand the basic parameters and how technology can help them serve their clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's part of what we've been pushing as well. It's not just a side thing. Oh, if you're interested, you might want to learn about some legal tech. It is how you must deliver to be efficient and effective in this world. Yeah, I've argued that you've got an obligation to your clients to understand and know how to deliver your services as efficiently and effectively as you can. So it's it's not just a nice to have. It's a necessary component to meet your obligations. I couldn't agree more. Well, Jane, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation and the work you and the commission have been doing over the last, uh, what would that now be, 15 years. And congratulations on your pending retirement. I hope there's great things in store for you and a very long and healthy retirement. So thank you for making time. Thank you, Steve, for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate your leadership in our profession, and I hope our paths cross again sometime soon. I do, too. We'll make sure to make that happen. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.